The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So a couple of weeks ago, um, we started this new investigation of the Buddha's teachings on the seven factors of awakening. I mentioned a number of weeks ago that in the Buddhist tradition, it's considered to be a very healing thing to hear about the seven factors of awakening. Even the Buddha, as the stories go at least, when he was sick, he would ask one of the other monks to chant, to recite the teachings on the seven factors of awakening. I always find that sort of interesting here, you know, at least as we're told, this is a fully awake, liberated being, but of course, like any human being, they get sick or have problems with the body. And just remembering, just being reminded of the seven beautiful factors of mind is uh, supportive. So this is, we should take this to heart. So as we talk about these factors tonight, and we're going to focus in on the second, which is the mental factor of investigation, Dhamma Vichara. this active part of the mind, this very wholesome desire in the mind to know, to understand deeply the way it is. So just uh, let's see if we feel enlivened or healed when we just recall the seven factors. And the important thing about these seven factors as you hear about them is you want to have a sense that they're here, not theoretically, maybe just in terms just as a seed, maybe not fully developed or fully online and operating and and sort of leading the quality of the mind or leading the shape of the mind, but just a sense that these are inherent qualities of the mind. So the first of the seven factors is mindfulness. I talked about that the last few weeks. Mindfulness is this capacity of the mind to remember that it's like this. So it's recalling moment by moment by moment. It's recalling or reflecting that it's like this. It's not forgetting, meaning it's preventing the mind from slipping in to conceptual proliferation. Because when we're lost in thought, then when the mind is lost in thought, it's not aware it's like this. When you're steaming about somebody, you're fantasizing about something happening in your life, you're rarely aware, oh, it's just thinking being known. So mindfulness would mean that the mind doesn't forget that it's just thinking being known. It's not about stopping the thinking. It's about not forgetting that it's like this. Like that there's a body sitting and it's like this now. Or there's a mood, everyone here, every mind, every heart, there's a mood here right now for each of us. And how is it? Well, it's like this. Whatever the mood is, it's right here. And the question is, is that part of the mind that we call mindfulness remembering to recognize? Oh yeah, it is like this. The mind's like this, the body's like this. So that ongoing not forgetting of this, of the present moment, that's mindfulness. It's also the governing factor 
It's what understands whether the other factors are present or not, because it's mindfulness is recognizing that it's like this. So we'll know whether there's any quality of investigation or energy or joy. So these are the three energizing factors. Investigation, energy, and joy or rapture. Joyful interest, you could even say. And then there are the three tranquilizing factors. Tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So tranquility is really that ease of heart. When the heart, mind, feels like, I don't need to go anywhere. Ah, I don't need this moment to be different than it is. Ah, that's tranquility, calm, right? What makes the mind tranquil or calm is it's okay with the way it is. It trusts the way it is. And then the more and more tranquility allows the mind to settle into a stillness, concentrated state, or a gathered state, a unified state of mind, which has the flavor of peace or stillness. And then when that peace, that concentration is nice and strong, then it's such a trustworthy feeling that the heart is less tied, the mind or heart is less tied to the ups and downs of life. We call that equanimity. That's the seventh factor. The third of the tranquilizing factors and the seventh factor is equanimity or impartiality. It doesn't mean that I don't care about anything. It just means that the feeling of peace or evenness of mind or tranquility, that they're so present, so dominant in the mind, in the heart, that all the other ups and downs are relatively unimportant. Whether you like me or not, whether you're treating me the way I want to be treated, whether my knee hurts or not, whether the temperature is the way I like it or too warm or too cold, I'll notice those things. I'm not, it's not that the mind is unaware. They're just, they don't feel personally charged how you're treating me the temperature of the room, whether I have indigestion or my body feels good. It's all okay because of that deep sense of tranquility and peace, stillness. So that's equanimity, or at least the beginnings of equanimity. So these are the seven factors, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy or rapture, tranquility, concentration, stillness, and equanimity. And it's said that when these seven factors are alive and awake and active in the mind, in balance, then there's no way to stop insight from happening. The mind is going to understand what it currently doesn't understand fully. So whatever the mind hasn't seen in terms of the very subtle nature of the mind, of experience, how stress comes and goes, all those important things, whatever isn't seen will begin to be seen and understood. And the Buddha makes the image, just as the Ganges River flows to the ocean, in the same way the mind flows to awakening, toward the deepening of understanding when these seven factors are in balance. So we're going through each one. We spent a couple weeks already talking about mindfulness. Now I'm going to talk about investigation. And there is a bit of a linear, more of a kind of a cycling through the seven factors where 
mindfulness, which is just this, as I mentioned earlier, this ability, this capacity to be able to track, oh, it's like this now, the not forgetting, it's like this now, tracking moment to moment, like I mentioned in the guided sit tonight, sustaining present moment awareness. So without that sustaining of present moment awareness, there's no real investigation because investigation and investigating the phenomena of the mind or body the way it is, it requires that the mind knows it's like this now. And then this quality of investigation, it's actually using the mindfulness, it's directing, it's picking up a particular theme in the present moment and it's sustaining awareness on that. It's, un, it's like deconstruction, taking it apart. But it's not exactly that way. It's more that with the sustained and focused attention on a particular theme, particular aspect of the present moment, it unpacks itself. It's like the only things, thing that keeps the mind from really understanding the way it is, is that the attention is superficial and not continuous. So the mind never really sees through the surface appearance. And the surface appearance is really the idea we have. So even something like my hand, which just happens to be in front of me. You know, it's the surface appearance. As soon as I look at my hand, the thought, hand, that's my hand, comes up. And because there seems like a lot of important things for my mind to do, you know, I don't second guess that. I say, okay, it's my hand. But that's just a thought, right? That's my hand. That's a thought in the mind. So to really understand, like, what do we mean by hand? What is the experience of hand? Are we talking about the visual experience? Well, that, there's no hand in the visual experience. There's sort of fleshy color or tanny color or, you know, ivory color or whatever you want to call it. There's that, the color, there's the shape, texture, but there's nothing hand in that. Or are we talking about, you know, the auditory experience where there isn't much (laughs) coming from the hand, at least not apparently. Or are we talking about the tactile experience of the hand? Well, that's not hand either. That's like vibration, warmth, a little pressure. It's pretty ephemeral, not much of anything actually, the tactile experience. So what do we mean by hand? See, that's Dhamma investigation. That's getting interested in the way it is. We're not looking for a particular answer like nailing it down once and for all. What is this? But it's more that process of knowing what it's not, like going beyond the superficial ideas, being comfortable with the not knowing or the ambiguity. So much of the whole path of investigation is going beyond the known. That's a famous line some of you know about Krishnamurti, um, spiritual teacher from the last century. And uh, I think it's actually the name of one of his more well-known books, Freedom from the Known. That we or almost always imprisoned by the known, even imprisoned by the idea of being at Common Ground on Sunday night. That can be an imprisoning 
concept, or I'm a male, can be an imprisoning concept, or I'm good, or I'm bad, or I'm, you know, all the ways, because once we have a concept, then we can, we imagine we can stop looking, because I know who I am, I know who you are, because I, I have some ideas, and then I use those ideas, I stick to them, I hold to them, fix on them, and then I don't really need to show up anymore. And then, you know, investigation, you can see that it might be energizing. Because one of the things, one of the most important things that investigation reveals is how valuable investigation is. Like the pervasiveness of superficiality, the pervasiveness of ignorance, or the pervasiveness of how our mind is almost always imprisoned by our ideas or concepts of things, how limiting that is. So when we do some investigation, there is this sense of uh, being energized, wanting to do more of it, trusting it, because there's an intuitive sense of its real value. Right. So then we have energy, and with that energy, the mind applies itself to the task at hand, which is to know the way it is, to sustain this wise, investigative attention to the phenomena of the mind and body, to the what's showing up. And that wholeheartedness, that full engagement, it's really a unification. The mind comes together in that task, and that's a joyful experience. We've had this experience, all of us, I'm sure, at times, hopefully many moments in our lives, where because of the particulars of the circumstance, circumstances, we really showed up. We weren't wishy-washy. We weren't holding back. We weren't second-guessing ourselves. We had a real confidence in the goodness of what we were doing, the activity we were showing up, what we were doing. And we noticed, hopefully you noticed, you recognized the joy, the rapture. Rapture, that word rapture is actually a very useful word, rapt. That it conveys that sense of the mind, the heart, gathered wholly there in the activity. Sometimes the, the place where we sometimes experience this, experience this is in play. You know, ping pong. Or, you know, lovemaking. Or walking in the woods. Or swimming in the ocean. Or something that is very engaging. Or, or the other place that happens, this kind of rapture, is when your mind is surprised. Not in a way that brings up a lot of fear, but when uh, you were expecting something and then it's completely not what you expected. Wow! You know, it's amazing. So interesting. It's like what prevents rapture is this deafening feeling like I already know what's going on. So I don't have to pay attention. I don't have to show up. So mindfulness allows the mind to investigate. Investigation reveals to the mind that its actual state of humility. <laughs> like, I don't have a clue what's going on. I just pretend to know what's going on. I mean, I often joke, we've had a mind, we have a heart, or whatever you want to call it, well, we've been too busy looking for mates or looking for 
success or looking for a good TV show to watch or something delicious to eat that we haven't bothered to be interested in what it is to have a mind or heart. Like, what is that experience? What, is, what do we mean by heart or mind? Who am I? <laughs> There's a famous Indian teacher, Ramana Maharshi. He died, I think, 1950 or 1952, somewhere around there. And quite influential, both in India, but you know, in the West as well, as a spiritual teacher, Advaita Vedanta teacher. And one of, he didn't talk a lot, but one of the, when he did give instructions, he would I encourage people to inquire, who am I? Not who is he, <laughs> Ramana Harshi. Who am I? Like, what is this? And not looking for a conceptual answer. Well, I'm Mark. You know, I'm the guy who's sitting right here. That doesn't tell me much. So we're not looking for the answer. We're really looking for uh, an, an experience. Like an experience that's not colored or not um, contained in a thought or an idea or an image. Like freedom from the known. So that leads to energy, that leads to joy, the pleasantness of that joy in the heart. You know, it's like this, isn't it? When we feel lifted up, buoyant, expansive, that's the experience of rapture. Ah, ah, right? Wonder. And that, that's a very healing experience. And it causes the mind to relax into tranquility. Like, I've been looking for something this meaningful, this interesting. And so the part of the mind that's been looking, it relaxes. The heart that's convinced, this isn't it, this isn't good enough, that relaxes. Because it feels like it is good enough now, the moment. And that's the ease of tranquility. Ah, I finally got where I wanted to go. This is the relevant moment I've been looking for. And then that tranquility, as I mentioned, it can settle. If, it, if, um, if it's left alone, it will settle. The mind will gather. And it's like the more active part of the mind quiets into a stillness. So the unification is like a lot of bright energy, but that bright energy doesn't neurotically have to do anything. So the mind's really bright, really awake, alive, but it's still, there's a stillness to the energy of the mind. If you don't, haven't had this recently, you won't, doesn't necessarily make sense, but those of you who touch this in your practice know this exact feeling where the mind is very bright, and very still at the same time. And that's the state of concentration, the sixth factor. And as I mentioned, that leads into equanimity. So I want to talk a little bit more about investigation and then open it up for discussion. But remember, for the next few weeks, we'll be talking about the active qualities. And so a lot of times when we think about Buddhist meditation practice or Buddhist awakening practice, we think about calm because it's just associated with the tradition and it's clearly important. And you can't even begin to do mindfulness if there isn't some calm. How can we track the present moment if the mind's all over the place? Well, we can't. So in a way, calm 
like I mentioned, this is a circular thing. And in a way, calm, we have to be calm enough just to be willing to sit for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, just to sit relatively still for that length of time. We're a lot more calm than a lot of people on this planet if we can do that. Or just to be interested in sitting is sort of an extraordinary thing. Most human beings are so overwhelmed by some of the basic things of survival, it doesn't even occur to them to sit still and contemplate the nature of their experience, their mind. It's just not in the cards, unfortunately, because they're living too much on the edge, or at least they think they do. And it's not always the people living in a war zone or in poverty. Even a lot of people who have a lot of power and wealth feel threatened (laughs) and insecure and like sitting still for a moment would be the craziest idea in the world. So this is an active part where with whatever calm there is, with whatever continuity of mindfulness there is, with the investigation of Dhamma, as it's called, or investigation into the way it is, the way things are, then it starts really with a seed of faith that there's actually something here or now that is worthy of investigation. So as I mentioned a few moments ago, there is a sense of humility, like, I don't know everything. And that's really important because you can maybe even get a sense of how it shifts the integrity of the investigation. To the degree that we think we know what we're going to find when we investigate, it really corrupts the investigation. We have to have that sense of innocence or sense of humility sense of not knowing the way it is, knowing it's relevant, but not knowing what it is. Things like the breath, you know, people, we all feel like I know the breath. I can't, I can't open to one more breath in or one more breath out. I'm sick and tired of being aware of the body. Why listen, why be aware of sounds? It's just the blower and that well, now we have the fans on low speed because when they're on high speed, so that clicking sound, it's like, God, if I hear that one more time or hear that person breathing loudly next to me or the other person sniffling or the person over in the other end of the room who can't sit still, moving all the time, I'm going to go crazy. So it's like um, we're pretty certain that whatever it is we're looking for, it isn't here. Now, we don't always say that out loud, but isn't that actually the underlying belief in our mind? That whatever it is we're looking for, perfect peace, deep wisdom, universal love, all the money in the world, you know, the perfect partner. But whatever it is, how sublime an aspiration we might have or how mundane of an aspiration we might have, mostly we're pretty convinced it's not here. So what we do then with the mind You know, instead of investigating Dhamma the way it is now, we're investigating our idea of where it might be. And this is called mental proliferation. So we don't look into the nature, the actual reality of the present moment. We look into our ideas about things, right? 
Like, how can I be happy? And then I examine all of my mental map, my concepts about how can I imagine myself happy? What would I need to have? What would I need to get rid of and fix? How would I have to change the world? But it's complete delusion. It's just total fantasy, right? That kind of investigation, or even investigating the past, what did I, what did I do wrong? That's also fantasy in a way, because whatever I imagine about the past, that's not the past, that's my ideas, my concepts about the past. Whatever is the past, well, the past is over, but whatever is left from the past is, has to be here. Where else could it be? So whatever's left over from the past, let's say there was some trauma or there's some unfinished business, well, where would that unfinished business be if not here and now? So we need this sense of the immediacy and the relevance of the present moment. One of the things that investigation, this this very pure, beautiful desire to want to understand what's not yet understood. One of the things that helps it along quite a bit is a deep respect for what's predominant in the moment. It's like there are many things happening in this moment or in any moment, like, you know, there's the sensations of pressure, my buttocks against the bench I'm sitting on. There's the sense of coolness of the air touching my forearm. There's the sound of my voice that I hear. There's the tension in my face and my hand. You know, there's the seeing. There's the mind evaluating what I'm seeing. You know, do they look awake? Do they look sleepy? Some of you look sleepy. Some, <laughs> some of you look awake. <laughs> so there are a lot of things to pay attention to in any moment. A lot of things we could investigate. But what's actually relevant in the present moment? What should be investigated? And the Buddha had a lot to say, and we should check it out, see if what he had to say is relevant. So, you know, we could give an answer that doesn't really say much. We could say, well, investigate what's predominant or investigate what's actually important. And what's actually important often has to do with the experience of stress or the absence of stress. Like the causes, right now in this moment, let's say the heart feels some weight, it's burdened or entangled or stressful. So if we're going to investigate something, investigating the supporting causes for that stress would be really relevant. Or if the heart's really light and happy and peaceful and fearless and open, well, those qualities of the mind or heart, there are supporting causes for the heart being that way. It would be relevant to know how it is that the heart is this way, stable and clear. Like, how did it come to be? What is it that the mind is doing? How is the mind relating with what view or what attitude or what qualities are present? How did they come to be that allows for this balanced, wholesome state of mind to be? 
So part of what investigation does, you know, which is different than mindfulness. Mindfulness is just remembering. It's like this. And then investigation is really the wisdom piece that's coming in and saying, honey, look at this. Let this thing deconstruct. Let this thing open up. Let's see what's behind or underneath this experience. Because that quality of investigation, it wants to know the most important thing. It wants to understand the most important thing. And in Buddhist terms, the most important thing are the causes for suffering and the causes for the release of suffering. That's the most relevant thing. And our laboratory is always here and now. There is no other place to do this investigation of the causes for suffering and the causes for the release of suffering than right here, the mind and heart right here and now. So even though you know we get instructions like be aware of the breath coming in, be aware of the breath going out, or be aware of hearing, or be aware of the body sitting, or the body walking... So there are a lot of skillful means. We sometimes call them training grounds. So we're really training the mind in the continuity of present moment attention. So we're giving it something. And because it's got something, like it has an instruction, know the breath, then it's more likely that the mindfulness is going to recognize when it's forgotten the breath. Because it has a particular object it's training with. Oh, I must be spaced out. I must be, I must have lost mindfulness because I'm not noticing the breath anymore. I'm not aware of hearing anymore. Oh, yes, thinking, <laughs> thinking. Now I'm back. It's just thinking being known. Okay. So, even though we have a training object, like the breath is a classic one, the causes for suffering and the causes for the release of the heart the causes for stress and the causes for the release of stress, they're right there, right? Because in knowing the breath, the mind has to be there in order to know the breath. There's no being aware of the breath, being mindful of the breath, without the heart or mind being right there, right? So breathing in, being aware of the breath coming in, being aware of the breath going out, there's either suffering or no suffering there. If there's suffering, then we can get interested in that. Breathing in, aware of the tension, aware of the struggling, aware of the greed or the aversion in the mind. Breathing out, aware of that. Or breathing in, aware of the happiness, the mind or the heart released of any traces of greed, anger, delusion, any unhealthy, unskillful qualities of mind. So when I say that we... uh, are always investigating suffering and the end of suffering, it doesn't mean we need a special or a different meditation object than we generally use. It means the mind has to be interested in that theme. It has to understand this is actually what's what's relevant. It's always relevant. Real happiness and the real experience of stress is always relevant. And, interesting and interestingly enough, it's always energizing the next factor of awakening. When this, experience, this uh, 
quality of investigation is investigating what's actually relevant, the way it is, and in particular, the way it is that suffering or stress arises and the way it is that stress ceases in the mind, then energy arises. The mind is inspired to apply itself to this task because it feels like it's going to pay off. I mean, human beings are clearly, and I always say this, not afraid of work. I always mention, you know, when I fly and you look at the earth below and you see how much of this planet has been transformed by human activity. So when we procrastinate or when we're lazy, it's only because we can't, even in our, with our deluded minds, we can't conceive of doing something we want to do. But when the mind sees something that really will be helpful, we have energy. We're motivated. It's only when we think, like we have the disease of helplessness, we don't, oh yeah, sure, maybe it makes sense for some people, but my mind's just too restless, or I'm starting my practice too late in life, or, you know, I'm just not smart enough to get this, or whatever kind of excuse we give ourselves, and then we believe it. We get identified with it. We really believe that there's no value in the practice. Well, who's going to do something that they're convinced isn't going to pay off? Nobody. We won't. Nobody works at something because nobody wants to be the failure. You know, like you do it and then, oh, I knew it wasn't going to work. So we avoid it. So we need at least a seed to do some investigation. But when we start to recognize the benefit of the investigation, energy will arise. And that's actually a nice barometer for this mental factor of investigation, is the arising of energy. Now, of course, it, it's an active part, so it takes some effort to investigate. You have to find some inspiration, because it's not the same as just sort of, sort of being with the breath. The mind has to be actively interested and, and again, it's not so much like sometimes you hear in the Buddhist tradition words like penetrating, but it's not really the best. It's more like the experience opens itself up. It's more like the investigation is a very pure, open, empty state of mind. And in that sort of bright, clear state of mind, whatever is arising, it, it sort of shows its colors. It deconstructs, it opens up, and the mind understands better what's at play, like the changing nature, the conditional nature, that things come and go lawfully according to causes and conditions. That whenever the mind personalizes or identifies with experience, immediately there's stress. And whenever the mind just allows, just allows things to be the movement of nature, there's the release of stress. We need to see that directly, experientially, many, many times. And it sets in motion this awakening or this liberating process of mind where the heart begins to let go of grasping. Sometimes people like Ajahn Chah and other teachers, they talk about the freedom as the realization or the awakening to the reality of non-grasping. awakening to the heart or mind that isn't sticky in any way. 
isn't grasping in any way. So investigation begins with this seed that this is relevant. I, I don't know. I don't understand fully. There's something to wake up to. And then the honing in is what the mind is waking up to is what's skillful and unskillful. And by that we mean what are the causes for happiness? That's skillful. What are the causes for stress? That's unskillful. In the moment, right now, it's so relevant. I mean, we have every incentive right now, even as you're listening to the talk, all of us, me giving the talk, you listening talk, we all have an incentive to be attuned to whatever's going on in our heart or mind that is setting emotion unnecessary stress or is supporting the experience of that release from stress. Why wouldn't we be interested in this? Again, it would only be if we thought that there's nothing here to be learned, which is the pervasive experience of ignorance. That's what the Buddha means by ignorance. It's not that we're actually ignorant. It's that we think there's nothing relevant to be seen or understood here. So we don't open. We don't look. We don't investigate. It's the non-investigation that is the very definition of ignorance. Not bringing our whole heart, whole mind, the sincere, wholehearted effort to understand, this pure desire to want to understand. Because we misunderstand the problem. We think the problem is that my body's getting old and now I have more knee pain, or that I haven't had a good meal today, or we always think we know what the problem is that will make us happy, or I just need to find a partner, or I just need to get rid of my partner, or I just need to... And we never, it never occurs to us or rarely occurs to us that the problem is that I don't really understand what's going on. I don't really understand the causes for suffering and I don't really understand the causes for happiness. And, but I do know, I have a sense that whatever those causes are, they've got to be here because I don't know where else they'd be. So maybe I should take a look. So we have about 10 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from some people. Just your own both formal in your meditation periods, but also informally during your days, during your lives, how this experience or this quality of investigation has come up for you and how it allowed you to see things you hadn't yet seen or understood clearly. So just how investigation leads to insight. So this is the wisdom part of the mind, the desire, the pure desire to understand. When have you seen that in your lives. And of course, any questions you have about what I've said tonight. So what comes to mind? Yeah, Nick. Um, this week I, I kind of had an experience with the investigation out at work and it was a pretty uh, stressful day and I was pretty convinced that this job was not where I should be for a long time. You know, that I started to think of all the places I can apply for other jobs and uh, that's kind of it's come up a lot, but um, this time I kind of, something just kind of clicked a little bit and just like asking to look a little bit deeper and it literally like the whole like I was really like just like deprived couldn't imagine any other possibility like this really depressing feeling and then like somehow I had enough um, like I could, just, could bring myself to the moment enough to 
see that it wasn't maybe true, and even just that thought, like, kind of turned the whole, like, scene around, and it, like, like, the way I felt, it totally changed. It was pretty amazing, and there was a lot of energy, kind of, it was easy to, like, go through the rest, the rest of the day until I forgot, you know, to pay attention to it myself, like, I kind of caught up with all that energy, but it was a really, uh, kind of, a really proud experience to have, it was really opening. Yeah, well, thanks for sharing that, and, and you, if you didn't hear, but, I think one of the most important things that Nick said was at some point the quality of investigation noticed the certainty, right? Your mind was certain that like this job's no good or something like that, right? But wisdom, that quality of investigation saw that as just a thought. It didn't see it as an absolute truth. It was just a thought. And that changed everything. That was the little, like what I was saying before about what's predominant, the cause for suffering. That was the cause for suffering is the absolute belief and the certainty of that thought. This job's got to go. This job's no good. When that's... Because, you know, the, the, the thing, we don't like ambiguity. We just, just tell me what's right or what's wrong. But... The fact is there's a lot of ambiguity in life. And so if we're, if we're going to be students of Dhamma the way it actually is, we have to get used to ambiguity and we have to be suspicious of any certainty. And that's what wisdom hap- that's what happened in Nick's mind. The wisdom, the momentum of wisdom, this pure desire to understand clearly, it wasn't fooled by the certainty. In fact, it probably honed in on the certainty Suspicious that in this world of ambiguity, certainty is suspicious. Oh yes, I'm not actually certain that this is the worst thing in the world for me. I don't actually know that. And then it opens everything up. Yeah, thanks Nick. Yeah, I don't know your name. John, Um, last week, uh, kind of somewhere, just kind of fear of knowing that whole thing. One of my sons is behavioral issues and just, you know, running around and screaming and just kind of taking a step back and instead of adding to it, it's like he's doing this, he's doing that, just saying, this is just noise. I'm just hearing right now and kind of lobby that deal with it from a better place, just deal with just exactly what it was instead of all these concepts and additional things I was adding on to it. Yeah, thanks. And that's such a, you know, it's hard for parents or anybody in that uh, situation where we feel responsible for the chaos and that we got to like get it under control but actually if we f- the first step is to relax with it you know to trust okay there's noise there's uncertainty and we're grounding and it just it allows for a lot more creativity because if we're feeling like I got to get a put a lid on this then we don't have too many options for how we respond yeah thanks john what else comes to mind? Yeah, Michael. Um, this is kind of like a, a general thing in my mind that I've noticed, like, and it's like increased over the years. Um, like, when there's like a, it's like a trigger experience, you know, to like go like do some behavior, like go like indulge in those TV shows or sleep in or, or whatever it is. Um, just like there's a lot of like you know, like flash of an idea or something in mind. Like I used to uh, smoke cigarettes, for example, and there's like I quit, 
there's all these triggers, you know, everything. It's like, oh, I should go smoke a cigarette. And then just like realization that that's just your mind being like, oh, you need to do this. And it made you feel better. And you're not feeling good, so you do this. And so just like, when you're just like, I can actually just dismiss this. And just like, missing it again and again and again. And so just like, the realization that I can do that, you know, um, as opposed to just. It's liberating, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, it really helped me with a lot of things. And because once you've gotten it with one particular pattern, like the the sort of response, um, the trigger for smoking cigarettes, then you start picking it up, like you said, you generalize it, and you realize how much of the personality is driven in this very primitive way, where a certain desire arises, like, you know, you could use some pleasure. And it's like, we could, we're willing to set in motion so much suffering because the desire, it's basically a, the desire is a squeeze on the heart, right? So, oh, that would be so nice to have that. But we're the one squeezing the heart, right? We squeeze the heart, and then when we get the cigarette, the heart relaxes until we want the next cigarette. But the, what we realize is first, it's okay just to feel the squeeze in the heart. Just because the heart feels squeezed doesn't mean I have to smoke a cigarette or go to the fridge or watch a TV show or stay in bed, or whatever we might do. I can just feel that yucky feeling. This comes up a lot, people getting up in the morning. You know, like if you have a, like one addictive pattern that a lot of us can have at times is just not getting out of bed when we maybe should get out of bed. And so, but what you can do is you can look, well, that's just a really yucky feeling. So I can stay in bed in order to avoid that yucky feeling. But do we actually avoid the yucky feeling staying in bed? No. So, Getting out, it may be more predominant, that yucky feeling. But it's okay. It's just that yucky feeling. And that is so empowering to know that we can be present with that yucky feeling. It's still yucky. We're not trying to convince yourself it isn't yucky. But it's a lot less yucky than avoiding the yucky feeling. Which one, you can't avoid it. And two, avoiding it is another yucky feeling. So then you got two yucky feelings. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I think we need to leave it here. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.